I don't normally do a part one and a part two message. Uh, I found out years ago they usually don't work very well. But uh, I had so much material and so much I needed and wanted to say that I couldn't get it in this morning, so I just decided I'm not even going to try because I didn't figure you'd want to be here at 3 o'clock this afternoon still listening to me. So uh, part two tonight of a message that I began this morning. It's called The Tech Savvy Family. The Tech Savvy Family. Meaning the family that's savvy concerning the dangers as well as the good things that are offered to us through contemporary technology. This morning we defined technology as the application of knowledge, especially scientific knowledge, in any particular area. Now, we tend to think that technology, when we say that, we think of a smartphone or of a video screen or something like that. The truth is, is technology is the application of any scientific bit of knowledge and to apply it in a practical way. I'll give you an example of technology, a soda straw. You wouldn't think of that, would you? But it has to do with the principles of vacuum and a hammer is, a, is technology in your hand. And there are, phys, there are principles of physics that apply to that, of course. So any application of knowledge, especially scientific knowledge, in a particular area could be called technology. One way you could think of it is this. In the beginning, God created the world and everything he didn't create is technology. Everything that God didn't make is uh, almost technology in some form or another. And though the Bible doesn't specifically have verses that address technology and say this is talking about technology, because technology is always growing, always moving, always evolving, always changing, God's Word doesn't specifically mention smartphones or video screens. But it, ha- it is absolutely full of principles that apply to smartphones, video screens, and, ev- and hammers and soda straws, if you want to think of it like that. Because God gave us everything in his word that we need to be truly furnished and to every good work, God gave us everything we need to be perfect, meaning mature and uh, complete in our Christian life. There's not anything that he left out. The scripture is absolutely sufficient for our spiritual lives and I think a lot of the rest of our lives. Now, this morning I told you about the Luddites. The Luddites were people who opposed technology, tried to burn down factories and tear up machinery in England between 1811 and 1816. They were opposed to technological progress. We are not Luddites. I have a cell phone and a computer and all the other stuff, and you do too. And so we're, we're not anti-technology just because it's technology. However, we understand there are some really tremendous dangers there that nobody's speaking about, and the pastor, in my opinion, has a responsibility to sound the warning and to put up the flag and say, hey, wait a minute, just because everybody's doing it, don't you be a bunch of lemmings and follow over the cliffs and destroy your life with them. 
You think for yourself and you think with a biblical worldview, which we've had a heavy emphasis on here in the last few weeks and months. And I'm thankful for the technology. It's a blessing to me, not just personally, but to my ministry. As I speak right now, this is going out over live stream. It's going out over the internet. A lady who's a member of our church last a couple weeks ago went to visit her daughter in Germany. I got an email from her in the middle of the week, and she said, I so enjoyed the service last Sunday morning, and she was watching from Germany. Isn't that incredible that that could even happen now? And I read this week that J. Vernon McGee, how many of y'all ever listened to J. Vernon? Just about everybody does at one time or another. And J. Vernon is an old Texas preacher, and he preaches on the radio, and he goes through the Bible, and he gives the most wonderful expositions, just simple expositions of Scripture. It was said in the article that J. Vernon McGee now may have preached to more people than anybody ever in history. Because not only did he preach to hundreds of thousands of people a day on the radio, when he was alive, there are more stations carrying his program now than carried him when he was alive, and he's been dead for 25 years. And all over the world, you can turn on a radio station and go across it, and you can pick up old J. Vernon McGee. Though he is dead, he still speaketh, huh? The same thing could be said of Adrian Rogers. I listen to Adrian Rogers often. Adrian's been dead. He died in 2005. And so thank God for the blessings of technology and helping us get the gospel out to the world. But there are limitations to it. Technology is not our God. Progress is not our God. Technology is not our religion. Technology is a tool that we as Christians want to use, but we want to be careful because it is a potentially damaging tool as well. It appears to be all powerful. It, it has the answer to everything. After all, think of the marvels of technology and what it can do. It appears to be all knowing. If you don't think so, just ask Siri. She'll tell you. She knows everything, doesn't she? But that's a, that's a false, that's a phony knowledge in, in some cases. And there are dangers to it. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my time talking to you about tonight. I talked to you about two of those dangers today, what it's doing to relationships. Families sit in a family room and mom's on the computer and dad's on watching television and the kids are on their smartphones and nobody's talking and we all are sitting in the same room but there's no communication and the relationships are deteriorating and it goes on, that's the norm, that's not the exception that I'm illustrating. It has a profound negatively, negative effect on our spiritual life because though there are, are great Christian resources, the world's philosophy is being pushed at us constantly, absolutely, unrelentingly, around the clock through the internet. And tonight I have some other things that I've found that I want to talk to you about, trying to help your family and you, and particularly the parents that I've talked about. Number one is the impact on the brain, the impact on the brain. I don't know about you, but I don't have any brain to spare. I don't need it to be further impaired. I already have enough of that natural impairment that's going on. 
Pew Research, which is the most reputable research uh, body in America today, tells us that 85% of U.S. teens own a smartphone. The Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey. They're one of the biggest medical providers and um, as well as other things. This survey was not done recently. It's seven years old. It was done in 2010. In 2010, 69% of 11 through 14-year-old children had cell phones. Today, and and 31% of ages 8 through 11. Now, that's been growing exponentially. I don't have the latest figures on it. But I just look around and observe and see what a high percentage of, of children even, not teens, just children, that either have access to a cell phone or ha- own their own cell phone. And I, I don't want to be preachy on this too much uh, because I know there are exceptions. But I, I, cannot, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why parents want to do that. You see, the, of all the things that a child would like today, it's a, it's a smartphone. It's, it's a rite of passage into adulthood in their mind. And I hold this thing in my hand. We oughtn't even call it a phone. That's just sort of a secondary thing about this being a phone. Do you know what this is? This is a handheld computer. It is a very powerful handheld computer. Listen to this statistic. There's more computing power in my smartphone than NASA had available when they put a man on the moon. Is that not an incredible statistic? I got more computing power in my hand right now, though I don't know how to use much of it. Just I haven't even touched the shore on it. But more computing power in my hand than NASA had available to them to put a man on the moon. And we call it a phone. It's a very high-powered, sophisticated computer. And uh, three clicks away from the most vile, obscene things that you can possibly imagine. Why isn't somebody screaming that from the housetops? Why don't the news ever report on that and get off of Trump for a little while? My soul. It's insanity when you think about it. A child three clicks away from the stuff that's on here. Sex traffickers are all over that. Pornography. Every vile kind of... Jihadists recruit off of that. And I put all of that power in the hands of an eight or a 10 or 11 year old, three clicks away. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The social platform of choice used to be Facebook. Now you adults here understand something that I don't think you know. Facebook is for old people now. <laughs> Facebook is the seniors uh, social media platform. And the kids are on Instagram, that's number one. Number two, Snapchat, <laughs> Snapchat, Snapchat. Number three is Twitter, number four is Kick, and it goes on to all these places you've never heard. And just about the time you figure that you've got your, 
kids, you know where they are? They've moved on to the next one because they don't all want you to know where they are frequenting on the web. And listen to this statistic. Between the ages of 8 and 18, many young people are consuming 4,000 hours of digital media content every year. 4,000 hours. That means nothing to you, does it? Until you multiply 365 times 24, and you'll find out that the year has a little bit short of 9,000 hours and that, therefore, a lot of kids are spending 40% of their time connected to the Internet. Does that have an impact on us? It does. <clears throat> a man named Nicholas Carr wrote a book. The book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, so it's highly recognized and recommended book. The name of the book is What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. The Shallows is the name of it. It's a New York Times bestseller by Nicholas Carr, C-A-R-R. -R. He says in here, we have become a nation of shallow thinkers. That's the reason for the name, The Shallows. America has become a nation of shallow thinkers. Our ability to reflect and reason seems to be declining. i read that once more. Our ability to reflect and to reason seems to be declining. Archibald Hart is a well-known uh, psychologist. He's from California. He's also a well-known Christian author, Dr. Alexander or Dr. Archibald Hart. He wrote this book called The Digital Invasion. It's probably the best single book that I read on the subject and uh, have been using. We've got about a dozen copies of them out there in the, in the media center, and I promoted it once before. We've never been able to sell them, so if you want one, they'll go pretty fast, maybe tonight, I don't know, but the digital invasion. And young people, uh, young parents, I would certainly recommend that you get that book. Dr. Hart says, quote, researchers warn our ability to contemplate or meditate declines in those over-engaging the digital world. Too much exposure to the internet diminishes your ability to concentrate. That you have an inability then to read long or heavy material. He laughed and said, War and Peace, the famous novel by Tolstoy, will never be read again in a few more years because people can't handle that kind of heavy long reading, six, eight hundred pages. I thought, yeah, and it's also affecting our reading of the Bible. And he goes into why that's true. Once you've been surfing on the internet, your mind is, instead of used to concentrating in long stretches of time, it's you're here, you're there, you're over here. And when you pick up a heavy book, it is boring because your mind has changed and has learned to think in an entirely different uh, way. And then he goes further and he says this. He says, this is especially true among those who surf the web and multitask. And I won't go into it, but I'm trying to break myself of the habit of multitasking because I did it. 
And there's a lot of research that says, hey, when you're trying to do more than one thing at a time, you're not de- doing either well, one of them very well, and you're really losing time in the process. And that's a big thing a few years ago, but you, you can't sit and look at your smartphone and hear me preach. <laughs> I've been wanting to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't listening because while you're moving over here, I'm, you can't do it. And, and that's true of a hundred other things in life. It, I just wanted to pick on that one, you know, for a little while here tonight. Our digital gadgets, says Dr. Hart, are so smart, we don't have to be smart anymore. In short, they can make us dumb. We don't... We don't know, we don't have to know how to spell words, do math, research a project, nor to think logically, end of quote. Now, I told you that on every one of these things, the Bible doesn't speak about multitasking and the impact of technology on the brain and so on. It never mentions that. Does it have any principles, however, that would apply? Well, what about this one? Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What about this one in Philippians 4 and 8? God's word tells us to focus, tells us what to focus on. Things that are honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report and praiseworthy and so on. And then the Bible says, and it emphasizes, think on these things. You see, the Bible principles do apply to every facet of this. And then what about Philippians 4, 5? Let your moderation be known to all men. Is spending 4,000 hours, 40% of a day, each of my days, is that moderation? Well, obviously not. Yes, Scripture speaks distinctly in principle about these things. And Technology can have an impact on our brains. Secondly, there's the danger of addiction. Now, there's been a debate for a long time in the circles that study these kinds of things. Can a behavior be an addiction or only a substance? We know that cocaine, we know that nicotine, we know that alcohol, that those are addictive substances. And we know that they create a physical, physiological uh, addiction. Can a behavior truly be called an addiction? And now most people would say it can be, and the primary example of that would be gambling. And, and we know people that, that act absolutely out of control when, uh, uh, in, in terms of gambling. That w- You've read of people who go to Las Vegas and they can't quit. They've signed away their house. They've signed away every dollar that they have in the world. That it is gambling becomes an addictive behavior. And I don't have time, nor am I uh, competent to go into all of the reasons for that, but I read this article, and I've got it in the paper. You can, you can uh, look at it. There's an article called How Texting is Taking a Toll on Our Teens. It was in the New York Times on May 25th, 2009, written by Katie Hafner. She said, on the average, the average American teenager, now this was in 2009, see, that's eight years ago. The average teen sent 60 to 80 texts a day, or 1,800 to 2,200 a month. Girls, about 15% more than boys. 
Now, it's not uncommon for parents to see on the bill over 3,000 texts per month from, uh, from a teenager, and some adults are even doing, approaching those same levels. Dr. Nicole Radswell has written a book called Disconnected. And though she is a psychologist who studies this, she said, I finally realized I am a social media addict. And she began to chart her addiction, if you will. She said, I found myself checking Twitter on average every eight minutes, every 48 minutes while I was asleep. Checking my smartphone on the average of every 2.5 minutes, about 350 times a day. Now, I read that and I said, I don't have any problem with that. And then I began to look at myself. And you know what I do unconsciously? This thing is laying on the desk before me and I pick it up and check it. Y'all look so sanctimonious like I'm the only one in this crowd has got a problem. I'm just about to be blinded by the halos. <clears throat> and, I th and I began to th think about them in my car. I, I pick it up. Did, is somebody trying to get me? The cult of self. I'm working on my addiction. That's all I'll say about it, but I'm going to tell you what. We like to think that that applies to other people. And before long, you feel like that, well, I better check. Do you know that in the studies of Dr. Radzawil, she says we've taken the phone away from people that we know are surely addicted, and they manifest the same withdrawal symptoms as a person that we've taken away their drugs. Anxiety, anger, stress, depression. People get very, very antsy if you take away their cell phone. One school tried to take away the cell phones and the principal said, I quit. He said, the kids were just, I mean, they were just going ballistic. They were, they were out of control. They just couldn't handle it emotionally. And he said, I'm, I'm trying another approach. Does the Bible speak to that? Oh, does the Bible speak to that whole kind of thing because it's so applicable in many areas of life. Please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this could be applied to many things other than um, cocaine or cigarettes or smartphones. Or it, it can be applied in so many ways. This is a great, great principle of life for all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you won't get your pen and mark this verse if you haven't. This verse says that all things are lawful unto me. It's not wrong for me to own a cell phone. But it says all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, the apostle Paul said, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be controlled by this. This is 
supposed to be a tool. I don't want it to be my master. I'm not a puppet of a thing. I will not be brought under the control of anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Dr. Hart's book, The Digital Invasion, the blue book I showed you, and you may want to get you, order you a copy of it. There's a test on page 142 to find out if you're addicted or how severely you were addicted to internet usage. Number three, the third danger. And oh boy, is this not a big one, the threat of pornography. Josh McDowell, whose name you're familiar with as a Christian author, he wrote a very important paper a few years ago called Just One Click Away. And Josh McDowell wrote, and I quote, the greatest single threat to the church, the family, and the individual Christian is the pervasive, destructive pornography available through the internet. Listen to this. These are facts. Internet pornography is the number one in every category of internet sales. I'm trying to go slow enough you can follow me here. Internet porn is number one in every category of internet sales. The, the number one term used in all the search engines, Google, Bing, whatever they are, sex. That's put into the search engine more than any other single word. The term sex is accessed more than games, travel, jokes, health, weather, jobs, Combined. That's what people are doing on the internet. More people are searching the word sex, listen to that list, than games, travel, jokes, health, weather, jobs, combined. The average age of first exposure to pornography is between eight and a half and 11. 90% of children, nine out of 10, between eight and 16, have been exposed to internet pornography. In the message I gave to the men last week, I talked about going to the University of South Carolina and the most frequently read book on the campus was Playboy magazine. But I was a little boy from West Virginia who had moved to South Carolina. I had heard that they sold dirty magazines, that's what they called them, in stores, but you had to ask for them, and they always said they have a brown wrapper on them. I don't know why it was brown, but whatever. And I can honestly say, I walked onto the campus of the University of South Carolina, and I'd never seen a pornographic picture. And I'm, well, hey, I was 19 and a half years old when I went there because I'd already gone to Bible college a couple of years. I'd never seen that kind of stuff. And in every dorm room, there was at least one Playboy being passed around, and stacks of them, old ones, and the centerfold cut out and 
stapled on the door. I'd never seen anything like that. Your kid don't have to go to Carolina. Click, click, click. They're there. It's that simple. Of course, we hear about sexual trafficking. Young girls, children, boys being snatched up and uh, sold as sex slaves, carried overseas, unspeakable, unmentionable, horrible things I can't describe with children in here, nor do I even want to. There's danger in this dark world. Winston Churchill said this, we become what we behold. What we look at, we become. We shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. And so we shape our tools. We make our cell phones. Nothing wrong with plastic and glass and wires and circuits. Nothing wrong with the Internet in per se, in and of itself. But then there's that dark underbelly that comes in. And even a child can access it. That's why I said this morning to you, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual, against principalities and powers. That's Satan himself. And against spiritual wickedness. Get the term, spiritual wickedness. It's in Ephesians 6 in high places. What are the principles? Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I think upon a maid? Hmm. Back that far in the past history, Job had obviously been exposed to this whole idea of lust. And he said, I made a covenant. I said, I'm not going to look at a maid, a woman, in a lustful manner. Jesus said, if a man look on a woman and lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart, not literally, but in the heart. And there's a verse I want you to look up, and I want you to mark it in your Bible. Parents especially, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I hear parents say, well, they're going to learn it sometime or they're going to see it sometime or you can't, you can't hide them from the world, preacher. They're going, to, they're going to know all that stuff. Well, they might. But let me show you the Bible position on that in Romans chapter 16 and down in verse 19. Your obedience has come abroad unto all men, he writes to the Romans. I'm glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet... I would have you to be wise unto that which is good and simple. Simple meaning naive concerning evil. Paul wrote to the Romans, I don't want you to go and look at everything vile and evil and wicked in the whole world. I want you to be simple. I want you to 
stay as clean as you possibly can. I don't want you, I would have you to be wise unto the good things of life and simple, naive, innocent concerning the evil. There's another one here. Number four is the theft of real life experience. The potential of it robbing us of real life experience. I read the story of a man, he said that he paid for a vacation trip to go and look at the whales out on the coast of California. And he said, we were in this boat out there on the Pacific Ocean, and suddenly one of the biggest sightings of whales that uh, God had seen in the entire season occurred. And he said, you know what happened? I found myself and all the people on my cell phone. The whale didn't stay up, but just seconds. Everybody was reaching, everybody was trying to get the video and missed the real experience. I see that at school. A little child has a, has a part in a program, and mama's got, and I want to say, hey, mom, you didn't even see him. We missed the real life experience, trying to capture that for, it's just the thing we do. Michael Cross and I were out on the ball field the other day. He was coaching one of our baseball teams, and Michael and I were talking about the kid's ability to play simple motor skill type stuff. And he said, preacher, you know what I've observed? Some of these little boys are 10 years old. They can't throw a ball. And he said, I said to them, just throw it like you throw a rock. And the little boy said, I've never thrown a rock. I thought, is that not sad? Can you go to heaven if you didn't learn to throw rocks? <laughs> when I was a little boy, I never passed a rock I didn't want to throw. If it was flat, I wanted to find a pond and try to skip it to the other side. If it was round, I wanted to hit the tree. And if it went thump, I went, yeah. Rocks are made by God to be thrown. And here's, he's talking to his ball team. He says, they can't throw. They didn't learn the simple throwing motion. Tragic. Because now we're inside playing video games and so on. Boy, I really sound like I'm preaching right now, but it, and it's not just the kids. It's the mom who said she was, she knew she had a problem. She was spending it two to three hours every evening on Facebook and then it suddenly occurred to her, I'm not talking to my kids anymore. They're being babysat by the television set or the internet. And she was missing her life. Is there a biblical principle? Yes, there is. It's Ephesians chapter six, 5 and verse 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. What does it mean to redeem the time to buy it back, to repurchase it, to use every minute of life as productively as you possibly can because, believe me, it'll soon be over. It passes very, very quickly. And the last principle I'll deal with tonight is technology and education. Listen to me. I'm going to read rather extensively here. But we know that schools advertise their high-tech status right now. 
It's, it's a prestige thing. And so if a school gets a new order of computers or whatever they're going to get, it's, it's a big deal. And the parents are driving this. The parents think that means that's a good school. The more, the more technology, the better school you have, right? That's what people think. I mean, we're progressive. We're on the cutting edge. We're, we're, we're the cool school. And uh, so more, bring it on. The more technology we can have, the better for our children. And I, wanna, I, I believe that parents are being deceived into thinking that technology is progress. Now, among private schools, and I'm the president of one and have been for 40-some years, so I know a little bit about that, I know there's heavy competition among private, even Christian schools. They spring up, and they, there's only a limited number of um, customers, and so we compete for those customers, and, and uh, the competition is, is very real. In terms of the public schools, of course, public schools, very frankly, you know my opinion about that. They're taxpayer-funded monopolies. And they have almost unlimited resources because the government will come out and the, and the, and the computer companies and the internet companies will, will give them lots of assistance. And so they, they keep right up. Well, there's a lot of studies that have come out that contradict the trend that more technology is just automatically better. I have an article here from The Guardian. The Guardian is a newspaper started in 1821 in England. It's one of the oldest newspapers in the Western world, continuous publication. It's a far left newspaper. You wouldn't think I'd be quoting from The Guardian. It's very socialistic. List, socialistic in its mindset. On Dece in December 2015, one of their reporters named Matthew Jenkin wrote a review of something called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. In the article, he stated this about education, and he's in England. Oh, keep in mind, this is the United Kingdom. And I, I quote, education systems that have invested heavily in computers have seen no noticeable improvement in their results for reading, math, and science in the PISA program or the PISA test. Now, that would be the English equivalent of our SAT test. He says the OECD's education director, Andre Schleicher, says... Listen, quote, if you look at the best performing education systems, such as those in East Asia, they've been very cautious about using technology in the classroom. Those students who use tablets and computers often tend to do worse than those who use them moderately, he said. And in addition... Other reports raise concerns about the disruptive behavior associated with the use of mobile phones and tablets in the classroom in the UK, end of quote. I, I think that this has become a major, major distraction in education at every level. I read the account of a girl who said, 
I text in class all the time. The way I do it is I act like I'm getting into my backpack. And while I'm there, I send the text that I want to send. So the teacher doesn't see me. I know that our teachers fight it right here in our own school. Interesting stuff. The CEO of eBay and other executives from Apple, Microsoft, and Google send their children to something called a Waldorf school. There are now 160 Waldorf schools in America. What characterizes Waldorf schools is a number of things, but there is absolutely no technology. None. They even frown on the kids using it at home until they get to a certain level. None. Why would the CEO of Silicon Valley's most prestigious companies say, I don't want my kid in a school with high tech? You would think, wouldn't you, that they would be leading the charge on this? I can't substantiate this, but I read it from one source, that Bill Gates has pushed Common Core on every school in America but sends his kids to to schools that don't have Common Core. New York Times, September 10th, 2014, Nick Bilton wrote the article. It's entitled, Steve Jobs, Low-Tech Parent. And so he said, I interviewed Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, right after, or right, uh, uh, right after the iPad, the first iPad came out. I said to Jobs, so your kids must love the iPad. He said, the first tablet was just hitting the shelves. Jobs said, they haven't used it yet. We limit how much technology our kids use at home. I had imagined that the Jobs household would be a nerd's paradise, that the walls were giant touchscreens. Nope, said Jobs, not even close. Every evening, I make a point of having dinner at the big long table in the kitchen discussing books and history and a variety of things. No one ever pulls an iPad or a computer. Since then, I've interviewed a number of technology chief executives and venture capitalists who all say similar things. They strictly limit their children's screen time, banning all gadgets on school nights and allocating aseptic time limits on the weekends. Very restricted. Chris Anderson is the former editor of Wired Magazine and now chief executive of 3D Robotics, a drone maker. He has instituted time limits and parental controls on every device in his home. My kids accuse me and my wife of being fascist and overly concerned about tech. And they say that none of their friends have the same rules, he said, of his five kids between six and 17. Well, that's because we see the dangers of technology firsthand. I've seen it myself. I don't want to see that happen to my kids, end of quote. 
The dangers he's referring to include exposure to harmful content like pornography, bullying from other kids, and worst of all, becoming addicted to their devices, just like their parents, said the author. But there is one rule that I found to be universal among the tech executives I polled. This is rule number one. There are no screens in the bedroom ever, period. Can't have it in your bedroom. Why? Tick, 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 pornography. Tick, 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 jihadist. Tick, 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 atheism. Tick, tick, tick. William Powers wrote a book on the internet called Hamlet's Blackberry. He said, this is not a small matter. This is a struggle that is taking place at the center of our lives. It's a struggle for the center. It is a struggle for control of how we think and feel. When you're scrambling all the time, that's what your inner life becomes scrambled. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Do we really want a world where everyone is staring at a screen all the time and keeping each other busy? Is there not a better way? End of quote. There is a better way. There is a better way, and it's the Christian way, isn't it? It's the biblical way. It's the way of God's people that we've experienced now for well over 2,000 years. It's the way of the gospel. It's the way of putting him first and self next. It's the way that the Bible teaches.